gradually controls are taking over a lot of the uh, things that operators used to do. And I'll self-adjusting combines as an example, um, the end of row turns um, on tractors and planters. A whole new era of communication in the crop industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the crop industry right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to the field, to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. Welcome to the Crop Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the global crop industry. Welcome to the Crop Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Arnell. Today, I'm really honored to have Dr. Scott Shearer on with us for this podcast. Dr. Shearer received his PhD from the Ohio State in 1986, was at Kentucky for a while, and is currently the professor and chair of food, agriculture, biological engineering at the OSU. Uh, his highlights of his career include development of methodologies and controls for metering and spatial applying crop products and product production inputs. Also, the modeling of agricultural field machinery systems, autonomous vehicle field production systems, strategies of deployment of UAS and agriculture analysis of production ag data sets. I've known Dr. Shearer for my entire career, and I've, I've considered myself lucky every time I get to sit down and, and visit because I'm always learning something. So, Dr. Shearer, welcome to the podcast. And if you won't take a moment to kind of tell the tell the audience, you know, how you ended up where you're at and what you do today. Well, thank you very much, Brian. And by the way, it goes both ways. I've enjoyed my association over the years with you, and um, I'm glad that um, I have somebody to keep me grounded in, in this area of uh, um, agronomics and crop production. So thank you for that soil fertility. Um, I'm an agricultural engineer by training. Um, grew up in the state of Ohio. Uh, my love of agriculture came from working on a, a fruit and vegetable farm that was uh, pretty close to the city that I grew up in. Um, the owner of the farm was an agricultural engineer, and that's how I learned um, about agricultural engineering at Ohio State. Got to Ohio State, uh, it was pretty comfortable here, stayed for all three degrees, um, and then took that first job at the University of Kentucky. I've always been a machinery person, um, a lot of my graduate work in mechanical engineering, but I've always been fascinated by automation. Um, got started with a farmer in Kentucky um, in Precision Ag, probably 1994, put the first yield monitor on a combine, and uh that's kind of, uh, I'm going to say, ignited my passion for where, where I'm at today and, uh, and my focus on um, all things automation, looking at AI and, and how AI is going to be deployed in agriculture. And uh, um, I thoroughly enjoy the, the opportunities that I get to work with manufacturers and uh, obviously uh, a lot of talented graduate students and undergraduate students over the years. I mean, I've already talked to Fulton recently, and so right now, to me, Ohio State is tough to beat as far as an engineering program. You guys are are, are really loaded with talent up there, so I'm quite jealous. Uh, not that we're slouch, slouches here in Oklahoma, but you guys got a great applied crew, which is always refreshing to see when it comes to that. So jumping into what, what you're doing, you know, most of our conversations the last couple of years have centered around automation. So... Let's not look forward. Let's look at, you know, what has been happening in the world of automation on the farm in the last uh, three to five years. Yeah. And, and, and Brian, I, I'm glad that you uh, mentioned the time frame there. Um, obviously, we've seen 
increasingly um, companies coming out with features uh, on tractors that um, are really removing a lot of the drudgery of control of field machinery from the operators. Obviously, we have auto steer, um, but but end of row turn technology. Um, I'm going to say over the last uh, several years, um, the operator of the tractor or combines really become more of a babysitter, if that makes sense. They're there when things go wrong. And uh, I, I think that's been kind of unique because kind of creeping up in the background is gradually controls are taking over a lot of the uh, things that operators used to do. And I'll self-adjusting combines as an example. Um, the end of row turns um, on tractors and planters. Um, I look at all the technology on planters today and, and, and think to myself, how has it changed or, or how has it uh, altered um, the, the um, equipment operators need to get off the machine and check and see what's going on from time to time as, as they plant. So um, it's made farmers better, all these technologies. Um, I think there's a lot more uniformity in, in, in seeding technologies, getting the, uh, the, the seeds placed at a, at a certain depth. Um, we look at firming a seed bed around the seed. Um, there's just a, a tremendous amount of technology that can be brought to bear on a lot of those, I'm going to say traditionally problematic type areas that maybe farmers didn't pay enough attention to. Combine adjustments have changed markedly. I think we see a lot cleaner grain samples. We see a lot less grain on the ground as a result of this. So um, fun, time to be, fun time to be a farmer. I love that that you went in the direction I, I was hoping you would, where, you know, you talk to farmers and you say automation and, and I, I think they picture the robots first, right? Instead of thinking about, you know, in theory, we had the, the whoever's running the planter tractor was getting off every so often, at least twice a day. We'd like to have seen it more often, but, you know, as soil conditions and field change. And I hadn't even thought about that with the automation, the precision plant, some of that technology, we have to stop less often because we're get, we know by row what seeds going down. So I like the you bringing up the automation isn't just the machines running itself, but we're collecting and knowing information as we go that is taken away, and that is automation in itself. Yeah, and, and Brian, one of the other comments I'll make about this too is you know if we go back to the days of uh, uh, the Dickey John uh, yield mo- or um, planter monitors with the light bulbs that flickered on and off. You know, today, um, when you see a row unit performing at about 98% singulation, the farmer stops the tractor and gets off and goes back there to figure out what's going on. You know, why isn't that 99.9%? Whereas we go back into the 1970s, maybe, and everybody was happy with, I don't know, 80% singulation in some cases. Uh, oh, yeah, those finger planters, I mean, finger pickups, if you got to 80, 85, that was, we still run some of those in research. So I know the challenge of getting good singulation on a two-row John Deere finger pickup. So, you know, it's, it's changed the way people look at uh, some of the operations. And again, I'll remind you, you go back in time, um, you found your planning mistakes after it was too late to do anything about it. Today, it's in real time that you're learning about those sort of things. So, so, so let's put it this way. If you step back to where you were, let's say it's 2023, around 2015, 2016, is there anything that hit the marketplace that was either more developed and advanced than you expected or had a bigger impact? I don't know if that question makes sense, but something that you, if you look back, you would have said, you know, this came out further or is further along than I thought it would be. Um, 
I'm, the, the thing I think that um, really captured my attention back in the, in, in the mid-teens was what precision planting did uh, for planting operations. Um, you know, I'm looking at um, if a farmer buys the full suite or the full complement of, of technologies, um, precision planting, I thought, was um, the, the, the company was kind of unique in that they really defined, redefined uh, planting quality, if you will. Mm -hmm. Singulation, singulation accuracy. You know, a lot of the terminology uh, coming out of the SeedSense 2020 um, monitor has really driven a lot of the other companies to do similar things. Um, one of the things that I've always been a bit confused by is why aren't we seeing the same type of approach applied to sprayers yeah. in terms of quality of spray application? Um, and, and, and so we're starting to see some, some evidence of that coming now. But but really, I think uh, it was that it was that startup business out of Central Illinois that kind of changed the way, at least in North America, we viewed planting operations. And and so, um, they I think they were ahead of uptake in terms of release of new products. Uh, like everything else, uh, some things work well in some locations, not so well in other locations. But 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 generally, um, I think that a lot of people look at planting today much differently than they did maybe back in the year 2000 or 2010 uh, because of some of those developments that we saw coming out of precision planting. Certainly other companies were coming along with things too, but you know, I remember variable rate seeding being the big C change in some respects. And mm -hmm. I think variable rate seeding might pale a little bit in comparison to some of the technologies we've seen come out for planters recently. Mm -hmm. Well, if, if you had told me back then that farmers would be readily and willing to pay what they pay for row unit now, I, I would have I would have laughed. But, you know, it's, it's pretty impressive what what it takes to put a, a full row unit together anymore. Well, and, and a comment on high speed planting. Um, I, I know planting speed is limited by the ground conditions, but also there was a bit of a sea change there and that all of a sudden. Um, you weren't constrained to five and a half miles an hour. Now, all of a sudden, six, seven, eight, nine miles an hour, it's okay. Um, yeah. it, it works well. Um, <laughs> and, and again, I, it doesn't really make any difference uh, whose high-speed planting technology you, you, you pick. We've done some things at Ohio State up to about 17 or 18 miles an hour, and really we saw a little discernible difference in yields of planting at those speeds. I don't recommend that people plant at 18 miles an hour, okay? But but the technology works, and, that, and what I keep telling farmers is, we prove that it works at, at above fifteen miles an hour. So you ought to be, you ought to feel comfortable at seven, eight, or nine. So, so, so that's actually it, it's funny you said that because we uh, part of another podcast I had Taylor on and a couple of others the other day, and we're talking about speed, speed of sprayers. Somebody in the class said they like to run their sprayer twenty five miles an hour. You know, and so we're talking it's like what is a legitimate speed of high speed just just because we or you as university says, you know, these planters will hit 15 is probably not a ride that we want to take on most ag fields at 15 miles an hour. Um, two things I'll say, you need to plant more border passes. And the other thing is you better be wearing your seatbelt. Okay? <laughs> Absolutely. I don't recommend planting at 15 yeah. miles an hour. I think that's absurd. However. Um, I think farmers, if they purchase the technology, should feel comfortable at seven or eight miles an hour easily. Again, local field conditions are going to dictate rocks, things like that, undulating terrain. Um, but, but probably some of the cheapest planter capacity that's ever been produced, yeah. um, bar none. 
Well, I think it's interesting is the same thing we say on the fertility side. If I go back to what Dr. Soley and Dr. Stone did on the variable rate application, we were that the, the engineers and the agronomist, Dr. Ron, were able to get fertility down to a sub meter resolution. And even, I mean, the, the sprayers that those guys put together were under six inches and they could hit it well. It doesn't mean we need it on every sprayer. That's what we have to do. But the point was we have the science machinery to do it, which should make you feel more confident once you scale up or, in your case, slow down that, hey, this is the potential. So that means the area you're operating in is is good. Yeah. And, you know, I looked at uh, variable rate application and and. You know, really kind of when it all got started was back in the mid-1990s. And uh, I'm kind of amazed today because we start talking, at least in the state of Ohio, about some of the challenges we have with water quality issues. And Mm -hmm. we're just seeing uh, some of the the, the federal and state agencies come around to, well, that variable rate application, that might be a good thing. Maybe we should be doing that. And and I'm I'm kind of amazed. the, the, the duration and length of time it kind of took people to get around to that way of thinking in some respects. So well, I know I know it varies, and and again you got to be careful because um, variable rate um, application is really well suited when you have a lot of variability. When mm-hmm. you're uniformly low or uniformly high, it really doesn't return too much to you in the way yeah. of. Uh, of, of benefits or profits. So no. And, and when I talk to my classes, Scott, I, I'll tell them it's like, you know, the engineers were there 20 years ago, agronomy, not even just agronomy, but agronomy and some of the conversations we have. And John and I have is that we don't even know how to do the agronomy at that resolution. It was never meant to be that small scale agronomy and soil science was built on watershed on County and giving it to field level. So we're still learning the agronomic sciences, and I'll be coming to, to Fulton in the near future and some of our folks here with potential sensor requests because of the work that I'm doing, because I know we don't have the technology to measure what I think we need to measure to do the variable rate application right. And, and Brian, the, along those lines, the gold standard is still pulling a soil cord, sending it off to a lab. And uh, as much promise as uh, a lot of people wanted you to believe in terms of our ability to sense on the go, we're yeah. still not there yet. Uh, yeah. There's been a lot of good um, products come to the marketplace, but yeah. there's nothing that universally beats that soil test that we send to a lab. And, and I want to say of all our inputs, on the go fertility will never really go because of the mental task it takes, because of the social uh, aspects of fertility. I mean, on the go IPM, that's fine. If it's a weed, spray the weed. But with fertility, that's, I mean, for decades, we have been telling farmers, you can't manage the water, you can't manage the pest hardly, but by golly, you can make sure the fertility is in place so that if the rain, the wind, and the sun hits right, you max. And now social economic issues, now we're saying, well, you know what, Maybe we weren't wrong, but they're bred in the mind thing, the mindset of that's a risk management. And now we're saying, okay, you got to do something that's a perceived risk that throws the whole thing out of the window. Yeah, no, no and I understand. I get that. Um, things are, are continuing to evolve and, and uh, you know, it's, uh, it's people being creative and thinking about ways to utilize technology to achieve an end goal. And, and so I get that. and. Um, 
historically, I think we, we had a lot of engineers that fancied themselves soil fertility experts, and we might have had a lot of soil fertility experts that fancied mm. themselves engineers. Absolutely. I mean, without a doubt, if, if, if you don't have the groups on the same campus that communicate, because we do have some campuses that may not communicate well, if there was no communication, then that one group had to, thought to lift themselves up. So we've talked past and current. So tell us what you see as the next 10 years, 15 years of automation in agriculture. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you some of the things we're working on at Ohio State. And I want to be careful here. Um, mm. Please don't construe anything that I'm saying as an endorsement of a product, but rather <laughs> think about I'm talking about classes of products. Yeah. And so in that spirit, in that light, um, we're really enamored with some of the automation packages uh, that have entered the marketplace. And uh, Brian, I know you talked to John and, and Randy here re- recently, but um, we were at Agrotechnica. And one of the things that I was kind of, kind of really blew me away in some respects was most of the major manufacturers had some sort of concept or product offering in the way of autonomy in their booths. And, um, I got to go back and count them up, but I got to about 35 different autonomous tractor slash robot offerings, um, either um, conceptual vehicles that have been put together or things that are being marketed currently um, at Agritechnica. And, you know, we have good examples here in the U.S. and, I'll, you know, the John Deere 8R mm-hmm. um, autonomous uh, tractor. I know that there's a number of those out on test this year. As an example, we have Sabato that's dropping automation packages on FET tractors and, and Kubota tractors. Um, our experience has been with, uh, with uh, a Sabanto automation package on a uh, Kubota M5 tractor. And uh, we've had it with a Batwing mower on it. We've had it with, uh, with a tillage tool on it. Um, I know this may sound inappropriate in some respects, but um, I'm really getting to the point where I have a lot of confidence in that tractor's ability to, to operate with little human intervention. Now, I want to yep. want to caution everybody at this point in time. We still have the human operator while they're not on the tractor. They're still monitoring the progress mm-hmm. of the machine in the field. But um, the, the technology just kind of bowls me over the fact that we've gotten to this point. And I think the gap that, that really got closed here recently was some form or fashion or ability to sense and monitor um, and, and protect against collisions in the field. And really, when you look at the John Deere tractor or, or to a certain extent, the, the Sabanto automation package, it's a collision avoidance that allowed us to go from where we had been with an operator on the machine to the operator being remote. Now, everything's not... Uh, not all necessarily roses, so to speak, because we need wireless connectivity to these machines. And one of the things you might guess in rural parts of this country, uh, we struggle with Internet connectivity, especially for mobile machines. It doesn't have to be rural anymore. Um, on the avoidance, uh, what te- are they using a sonar technology? What are they using commonly for avoidance on these larger machines? So it is, as this automation evolves and, we can talk about different levels of automation um, for passenger cars or um, vehicles. We talk about level zero through level five autonomy. You get to level five, no human intervention is needed. No human monitoring is needed. In agriculture, we're about level three right now. There's still an operator in the loop. Okay. Um, the technologies that are enabling us to go from level three 
to hopefully level five is actually artificial intelligence applied to a vision system. Okay. Mm-hmm. And if you look at John Deere's 8R, um, 8RX autonomous tractor, they're actually using multiple stereo vision systems that have been trained, in my understanding, at least news accounts. They're using about 40 million images to form the intelligence um, for collision avoidance. But my yeah. understanding is, in part, um, that training, you've got to kind of anticipate all possible situations. Um, I listened to a person talking about risk mitigation for autonomous uh, vehicles uh, when I was in Germany, and, and he, he made some rather amazing statements to me. We have automated taxi cabs in San Francisco, okay? And this guy was saying that uh, for automated cars, the environment is very well known, okay? It's a paved road. It had, there's stripes, uh, lanes. Mm-hmm. Um, you got crosswalks that are identifiable. you got street signs that govern uh, the, the, the local laws. Agriculture doesn't have any of that. And, you know, what crop are you in? What's the previous crop? Uh, what's the shape and size of the field? Are you crossing a waterway? Is it a tree in the way? And, and all my, the, the point being is, and this guy was very good at making this point, this gentleman that was speaking, agriculture is a very difficult environment to develop artificial intelligence for. Okay? It is diversity. It makes perfect sense. And, and so anyways, and then he drove the point home. Um, he said in agriculture, how, how often you have to be right with AI? And somebody in the audience said 99.9% of the time. And he said, so, okay, I, I have a large fruit and vegetable operation. I employ a thousand workers. And what you're telling me is it's okay to run over a human every, every month. And mm-hmm. so it's all perspective on risk management. And, and we have yeah. to think carefully through that as, as we move towards autonomy. It is occurring. Mm-hmm. It is real. It is going to change the way we do agriculture. There's no question in my mind. All right. I'm going to move this, and, and you didn't list this on, on the things I could ask you about, but I'm going to ask you about it anyways because I, I always ask you about these things when it comes to your other work. Got into the conversation with John about the the size of equipment. So this is going to be two, two-parter, all right? So all right. he mentioned <clears throat> with the move, I mean, we're getting 200, 300, 400 horse tractors the addition of the track is becoming more prevalent. Just in layman's term, if I put a, a, a track on a 400 horsepower tractor, what does that do compaction wise? Is that the same as a 200 horse without tracks or are we going down to a 50 horse? Cause tracks are that amazing. Um, I'll start with a couple things. I don't know whether John covered any of this, but mm-hmm. One of the things I always encourage people to do is look at the owner's manual for tractors, wheeled versus track tractors. Generally, on a wheeled tractor, we're going to see recommendations ranging from 120 up to 135 pounds per engine horsepower. Mm-hmm. For track tractors, they'll back that down a bit. Okay, It's not universal necessarily, but we're starting to see some recommendations in the, the 110, 115 pounds per engine horsepower. So um, to get the engine power to the ground, depending upon the traction device, you have to have ballasted tractor mass. Mm-hmm. You know, if you got a 500-horse tractor and you've only ballasted it for 300-horse uh, transmit to the ground, obviously that's going to be your limitation on what you can do. Um, what you're going to do is get an excessive tractor wheel slip. Having said that, um, I want to get people thinking about there's two types of compactions. There's surface compaction, there's deep compaction. Mm-hmm. Deep compaction is driven by axle load. Okay. Yep. Shallow compaction is driven by contact pressure. My concern 
And you got to be careful here because a lot of people say, because you put tracks on a vehicle, I got five to six PSI contact pressure that I've taken care of my action problem. Well, I don't think that that's an accurate statement. Okay. And what concerns me greatly is what we have 3000 bushel grain carts now. Oh yeah. Um, We got tractors in the marketplace over 700 horse. But if you've been uh, watching things on social media here recently, one of the major manufacturers probably has a, a tractor coming in the marketplace that, that will probably top out somewhere around a thousand horse. Mm-hmm. And I want to remind you, you got to ballast the tractor if you're going to use it in a tillage application. Yeah. Okay. So, having said all that, um, the higher the gross vehicle weight, in my estimation, my professional opinion, the deeper you're going to drive soil compaction into the ground. Okay. And that's irregardless of wheels or tracks. Now, mm-hmm. will tracks help mitigate some of that? Certainly. There's no question about that. But I don't want people to fall into erroneous thinking about just because I have tracks on my machine, I no longer have compaction problems. The other statement I'm going to make, and I hope you can appreciate this, tracks will get farmers in trouble. Oh, yeah. What I mean is they will go to field and perform field operations because they can not necessarily because they should. And what I'm really talking about is wet fields at harvest, okay? Now, look, I get it. Um, The grain sits in the field, you lose yield um, for a variety of reasons, and you want to get in there and get it out. But the other thing is those tracks will give us mobility probably at the wrong time to be in the field too. Well, it's it's like – I'll, I'll, I'll joke. It's like the, the Texas students that are in Oklahoma and Kansas the first time at ice is over and they have four wheel drive. So they think they have four wheel drive. So they're confident to go out on the ice. They've never seen the ice today in their lives. And so that's just immediate. We see more four wheel drive pickups in the ditch uh, on our first ice event on a college campus. And you could probably uh, uh, appreciate that when you're in Kentucky, the same point. But yeah, I'm, I'm reminded this is several years ago. We were collaborating with a farmer and uh, we had a track combine, we had a track tractor and a track grain cart. And uh, the farmer said, I don't care what you do, get that grain out of the field. And uh, the uh, grain cart operator um, on the radio was telling the uh, combine operator when the uh, water got up over on over the, the fan on the cleaning shoe. And mm-hmm. that's when you had to stop. But, you know, um, hey, I, I get why people are going to do certain things. Um, I will say that tracks. When you have poor ground conditions, certainly provides substantial advantage. Yeah. And, you know, we're probably doing a lot less in the way of uh, damage to fields by not rutting them up near as badly. But um, I also want to be careful because they're going to be on soils, um, you know, close to field capacity where compaction effects are going to be the most pronounced from those gross vehicle weights. As, as we speed up weather tractor wheeled, do you, on the engineering side, do we expect to see more slippage or less slippage as our speed goes from five to eight? Um, I know it's a field condition. The researcher would say, I can't tell you because you don't tell me the field condition, but let's just give a general. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to say generally as we speed up, and part of it depends upon the draft application. You got to be careful there. Um, my, my guess is we're probably going to see less slippage, okay? But again, it all has to do with the draft load and how that tractor is ballasted. So you got to be very careful. 
Um, generally, if we're running higher speeds, we're probably going to see lower draft loads, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Um, and, and in part, there's this trade-off between speed and in- implement width, if you will. Okay? Oh, yeah. Um, I had a conversation recently with a tillage tool manufacturer, and I said, um, are you ready for 1,000-horse tractors? And they replied, I don't think we have tillage tools wide enough. And I said, well, um, if farmers can't get wider tillage tools, what are they going to do? And I, they said, well, they're going to pull them faster. And I said, well, okay, are your frames going to hold up to uh, higher speeds? Yeah. And uh, it got pretty quiet at that point. <laughs> anyway, uh, there's a lot of challenges. You know, we, we see the high-speed disc coming out. We see uh, vertical till tools. Mm-hmm. And, and again, those ground speeds on tillage, if anything, have gone up over the last yep. several years. So, well, Randy Taylor was talking about somebody he visited with, probably at Agritech, a, a, a spray repair guy who had to take a trip to Australia to find out why booms kept crashing. It's because they were taking corners with a 120-foot boom at 20, 25 kilometers per hour, 30 kilometers per hour, and that just – whipped it around so shattering the carbon booms. Um last last little question I have. We in our time together we talk often about autonomy and we've been talking vehicle weight and, and horsepower. If we move forward into what you would deem as a perfect autonomous system where we're talking swarms of tractors, that's a whole other conversation. What's that tractor size that you're seeing would fit the swarm system? Are we in the hundred to two hundred horsepower class? What's that really looking like? So you kind of hit on one of my favorite topics, and I could probably go on for about three or four hours on this. But <laughs> one of my assertions is um, if we automate, and, and I think you're correct in that we'll probably have more pieces of equipment. But if we automate and we're able to remove the operator from the environment, we're able to have that human maybe monitor four or five trackers. I think they get smaller. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the trend right now is towards bigger equipment. We see bigger combines, bigger tractors. I get that. Farmers want to be more timely. They buy them. They are more timely. They farm mm-hmm. more, more acres. Um, but everything's predicated on a human operator being on the machine. Okay. And yes, I know we have some examples of uh, machines where we remove the operator from the cab and, and they're monitoring the piece of equipment. But two or three things to kind of get people thinking here. First of all, as equipment gets wider, our field efficiencies go down. Mm-hmm. Okay? You know, the big 48-row planters, it takes a while to jockey them around when you're, when you're turning at the ends. You get into fields with point rows and things like that. It's just it's more complicated. Your field efficiency goes down. Smaller equipment generally has higher field efficiencies. And so that's one factor. Um, another one to think about is um, as we... Um, Go to bigger equipment, and I'm going to use Ohio farmers as an example. They tend to be more spread out because they may not own all the ground in one location, and so they're cash renting, leasing, whatever the case may be. Speaking to a farmer this past summer up in northwest Ohio, and I said, how far are you spread out north, south, and east-west? He goes, I'm about 33 miles north-south and about 23 miles east-west. And mm-hmm. so as, as we go to bigger tractors, the question is, and, and this is a, a valid one, how much time you spend on public thoroughfares yeah. going between fields, okay? And, and so that's a factor I think that we need to consider. The other thing is, is we automate. We're going to remove a lot of the uh, parts of components on the tractor that are put on there to support humans, the cab, the air suspension seat, the seat heaters, the, the, the vi- seat vibrator. Um, nice high intensity discharge lighting. I mean, all that yep. stuff goes away. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
And that really brings down the cost of the tractor. Now, you're going to argue, well, the automation takes it back up. But one of the other things I'm going to say to you is, in some respects, when I look at what Deere has done with their 8R, they put that uh, Stereo Vision AI system on there that allowed them to take the operator off the tractor. Mm -hmm. So there was kind of a marginal cost there. I'm looking right now, if, if I go out and buy a new high-horsepower tractor, okay, and I get all the bells and whistles, so I want to be careful. I sat around trying to get uh, one of the manufacturers' uh, four-track tractors. Um, I was trying to get it to a million dollars, and I couldn't. I spent about an hour and a half, two hours doing that. Um, but the takeaway was, once I got all those options on there, it was about $1,560 per engine horsepower. Mm -hmm. um, I did the same thing on a Kubota M5 with a ROPS. I maxed it out. Okay, it took me about 15, yep. 20 seconds. And the cost of that was somewhere around uh, uh, $670 or $700 per engine horsepower. Yep. So a lot of difference in terms of the iron cost, which I think the, the, the Kubota tractor I just related to um, represented versus the technology cost. Yep. Okay. So um, I think the iron manufacturers, the traditional machinery companies, um, and there's pretty good evidence of this, now are beginning to understand that a lot of their profits are going to come from selling technology. Okay. Oh yeah. I'm suggesting iron becomes more of a commodity, whereas technology is what really differentiates some of these products. I think the ultimate tractor size is probably going to be around hundred to 130 horse. I think if you have ground engaging tools, it's going to be either 10 feet or three meters. In there. I think yep. if you're spraying, it's going to be a multiple of that three times that. Yep. Um, and part of it is, that tractor could easily be transported on a truck and trailer. You don't need a CDL to move it between fields. When we do get it to the field, it's going to spend a greater percentage of the time in the field actually doing work because it's a smaller mm -hmm. tractor. And I think you're right about there's going to be multiples. Um, we're going to be able to run them 24-7, which has some advantages over what's going on today. And uh, that single operator the person that's probably moving the vehicle between fields is going to be able to monitor the activities of multiple machines. The, the interesting aspect of what you said on the, the size is what I think. It's also what we work with heavily on the uh, ag experiment side is, that, you know, I'm running uh, four row planters on 30 inches. I'm running 10 foot drills and I'm running 30 foot sprayers. Why? Because I can move them up and down the interstate and the highway effectively, efficiently with one ton pickup and a three quarter ton if I must. It, it's not not out realm. Um, I, I wonder. I'm, I'm going to yeah. give you one other thought. And a uh, company out of Australia, Swarm Farm, is building autonomous mm -hmm. sprayers. Okay. And they've been here in the U.S. and they've been demoing one of their sprayers. The interesting thing, one of the take home messages, I got to, to meet with uh, Andrew and, and uh, Jossie Bate, uh, the owners of the company, but they got out their smartphones. We're sitting in Columbus having lunch. And I said, How many of these machines you got out in Australia? And they said, 54. And so I looked at them, and, and they showed me where all the machines were located on their smartphones. And I said, you know, there's quite a few of these machines that are inactive. And they said, well, they're probably in the bar. Okay, I, I get that. But then there were a number of the machines that were active. And I said, so so there's a bunch of them that are sleeping. What's that mean? He goes, well, it's nighttime in Australia, so they're not, you know, they're not working at night. And I said, well, there's like three or four sprayers over here that are operating. I said, how can that be? You told me it's nighttime. He goes, well, weather conditions are such that they can continue to operate. The wind speed uh -huh. low, and there's no inversion predicted. I said, so what happens if the wind speed gets up? He goes, we shut them down. 
And, and so it, it, it got me thinking totally differently about spray application in some respects, you know, and, you know, that's, that's a bit of a game changer in that you sense the local variables in terms of weather conditions and you control the sprayer in relationship to that. Yeah. I mean, I I'd fully assume that we basically put on all these, especially the spray models, a small weather station that's getting relative humidity, getting wind speed, getting those those parameters for the site-specific nature, not just to say, do I stop, but also to record it so that if something happens liability-wise, we have that to share or not to share, depending on the situation. One last, one last question that's going to make this really brief. If we talk about planters moving from a, a, a 400 horse running 60 feet or 90 foot, whatever, versus a, a hundred, I'm, I'm running four row units with a 90 horse. So let's just say a hundred horse, four row unit. Can I get on a field in Ohio any quicker if I run a lighter tractor with smaller row units or do I still have the same, I have to wait for it to dry out the same equally? Um, I, I think you hit one of the nails on, on the head, so to speak, in that our mobility with, with a lighter weight tractor is going to be much better. I'm going to go one step further. What happens to our mobility with a lighter weight tractor if we put tracks on it? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, you're back in the top two inches dries out. You're back in planting a lot sooner than you are with a high horsepower tractor, mm-hmm. uh, central fill planter, and, and a lot of the attendant uh axle loads that, that come along with that. And so um, I think there's some value there. I think it's going to take a while, but I think long-term there's probably going to be some uh, soil structure benefits to go into uh, lighter weight vehicles and uh, perhaps even tracks on those. It's time for our famous three. I'd agree. I, I, I could stay here all day with you, Scott. So we're going to wrap this up so we can go both get on to our, our business at hand. A couple just questions um, that we ask all of our guests. First is, what's your go-to work resource? What do you turn to when you have a question? Well, you know, you Google everything. Okay, <laughs> I, I'm sorry, but that's nope. that's kind of where it's at. But uh, but I'm telling you, um, one of the things I've been having a lot of fun with is chat GPT. Yeah. And you you don't get anything better than what you ask. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so I want to be very careful about this. If you ask very direct, very pointed, very well thought out questions and ask it to respond, it comes back with some amazing information. The, the other thing that I've kind of enjoyed here recently too, is, is some of the image uh, AI driven image generators. Sometime since you're a, um, mm-hmm. a soil fertility person, jump on there and have it generate a corn plant at uh, fourth or fifth leaf stage with a potassium deficiency and see uh-huh. what you get back. Okay. Do it's just, I, I know it sounds kind of odd or whatever, but I think AI is going to change the way um, a lot of us do our daily work. Yep. All right. So um, on a little more personal note, what do you do in your free time? If you have any, what's your leisurely activity of choice? Um, I always tell people, my avocation is my vocation. Okay? <laughs> um, yep. You know, I, I love anything uh, agricultural machinery related. Um, if, if anything, I'm going to be at home um, playing with my, my, my tractor and, and implements. And I don't, I don't live on a farm, but, yeah. you know, you just got kind of in your blood or whatever. So anything tractor, um, anything sprayer, combine, whatever it is. If I have an opportunity in my spare time, I'm going to be doing something like that. And it sounds kind of odd, but you know, when you're, when your avocation 
aligns with your vocation. Um, I come to work every day and I have a lot of trouble determining when it's time to go home. So. <laughs> I agreed. Finally, so if we, people want to know more about what you're doing at Ohio State, sorry, the Ohio, the Ohio State. They want to know more about what's going on up there with you and your department. Where do they go? Uh, there, there's two or three resources. Obviously, hit our webpage. There's no, 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 uh, I, I encourage you to do that. Um, I'm going to give a lot of credit to uh, people like John Fulton and Elizabeth Hawkins because of their uh, creation of the publication we know as eFields. And so what we're trying to do as we, uh, as we adopt and, and begin playing with some of these technologies is try to publish the results of some of these field investigations in eFields. You can get online, download it. Um, it's, it's, not a, it's not a heavy read, a lot of graphics in it. Uh, it's, it's really designed to deliver information in a very short period of time. So, yeah. Fantastic publication. Yes. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. I share with our ad communication group on an annual basis saying, hey, when can you help us create this? So, Scott, Dr. Shira, thank you so much for joining us today on this podcast. I always enjoy visiting with you and hope to get to see you in person soon. Well, Brian, thank you for your time today. Um, I always enjoy catching up with you as well. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.